Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. Nearly half the population is considered obese. 88 million American adults are pre-diabetic, and 100 million have high blood pressure. People continue to try these fad diets. They cut fat, reduce carbs, and eliminate sugar, but it's not making a dent. Joining us next is best-selling author Mark Schatzker. He's spent his career traveling the world in search of answers, and in his new book, The End of Craving, he takes a deep dive into food and its purpose. He believes that by restoring the relationship between nutrition and the essential joy of eating, we can live longer and happier lives. If you are craving answers, don't go anywhere. It all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Joining us next is award-winning international best-selling author. He's a writer in residence at the Modern Diet and Physiology Research Center, which is affiliated with Yale University. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Best American Travel Writing, and Annual Review of Psychology. His last book, The Dorito Effect, was called Illuminating and Radical by the New York Times. His latest book, The End of Cravings, takes things to an entirely new level. Welcome to the show, Mark Schatzker. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, glad you can join us. Share with us first, what inspired you to write The End of Craving? Well, my deep curiosity over the fact that so many of us have such a dysfunctional relationship with food, and yet food is necessary for us to, to live. How could it be that something that is meant to nourish us has become, you know, one of the leading, you know, causes of, of disease and death? Yeah, very true. You know, one thing that I, that I read, and I've been saying it for years, and I'm glad we're on the same page, is when it comes to weight loss diets, I get asked, what works? And I say, they all work. Otherwise, they wouldn't be around for all these years. The problem is that the success is very temporary. And within six months to a year, the weight comes right back. Share why diets initially work, but the results don't last. Well, it's because the brain controls body weight. We think it's up to us that we can choose what we're going to eat the same way we decide if we're going to turn left or turn right at an intersection. Um, but, but in fact, it is not within our control. It is in kind of a short-term sense. So, so the way it goes with diets is that people start a diet and the pounds really do melt away. They fit into their old genes. Their friends say, you look great. They feel great. Around the six to eight month mark, the weight starts to creep back up. And this is why it's insidious. Because people say, the diet was working, I failed. But that is in fact not what happened. What happens is the brain understands the body's losing weight. The brain senses this and it says, I don't want you to lose weight. I want you to go back to the weight that you were. So the brain causes us to feel tired. The brain you know, increases our appetite and that's why we return. And that's why people are on this kind of you know, cyclical diet routine. Every spring they get back on it, they say it's working again, but it's a, it's kind of a, a, a dismal, vicious circle. Yeah, and you bring up something in your book that it's, it makes a lot of sense called the weight set points. And it, it's why, would, would explain why yo-yo dieters always come back from the yo to the higher yo. What is a set point and why, do that, why does that need to be addressed? Well, the set point is kind of the idea that um, it's like you have a fixed body weight, the same way you have... Um, you know, blood temperature, you know, body temperature. We, we are, are temper, you know, we have a certain temperature that the body maintains. That's why when we get cold, we want to put on a sweater. And when we get hot, you know, you want to open the window, put the air conditioning on. The, the brain regulates um, the health of the body. And we see something similar with body weight. Now, people might be thinking, well, hold on. You just said that diets don't work. That, you know, the brain is kind of on this, 
you know, lifelong quest to gain weight. But that is in fact not what we see because scientists also do overfeeding studies. They, they take subjects and they feed them too much. And this is nearly as miserable as starving. The first time they tried this, they had to go to a state prison because free living people just could not put up with the agony of eating too much food. But most interestingly, when they do these overfeeding experiments, when the experiments are done, the weight that is gained it drops the people snap back to the old weight. So it really puts, you know, our, 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 this, this kind of mass weight gain we see in a different light. What, what could cause so many brains that are so good at managing body weight to all kind of go, hey, let's eat more, let's weigh more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, I, and also you, you mentioned in your book, The Historic Rates of Obesity, and you compare America to Italy. Share with us what you discovered. Well, this is, you know, one of the most interesting insights. We have this long-standing prejudice against food, against the pleasures of eating. We say, if it tastes good, spit it out. And we think one of the reasons that we're all gaining so much weight is that we're just surrounded by too much delicious food. You know, we think we, we were sort of, appetite was forged in the Stone Age and we were perpetually starving. Well, then go and have a look at Northern Italy, because this is just an upside down Alice in Wonderland world where nothing seems to make sense. They do not eat a Mediterranean diet in Northern Italy. This is not the land of olive oil and grilled fish and legumes. This is the land of pasta and salami and cheese and cream. It's a rich diet. They prize their food. In the city of Bologna, that's where we get the word bologna from. They call it mortadella there, and it's got big chunks of fat in it. They have a repository of recipes. They, they say if you're gonna make lasagna or tortellini or any of these wonderful rich Italian dishes, you have to do it a certain way. Um, they even have, their favorite noodle is called a tagliatella. They have it cast in gold. This is how much they love it. This noodle is made from flour and eggs, carbs and fat, the two macronutrients we've been living in fear of. Most astonishingly, the rate of obesity in Northern Italy is less than 8%. These are people who eat incomparably good food. We fly there so we can eat what they're eating and yet they are so thin. So this tells us we're getting something wrong. It's not really delicious food that's doing us in, it's clearly something else. Yeah, so would it be like, for example, you know, my parents went to Italy and they, they had cheese and fattening saw and, and wine and came back and they weigh less. And of course, everybody says, well, that's because they walk more. And so I did some research and I said, well, not true, because uh, the average person walks 13 miles at a weekend at Disney World and drink all the wine and you want and come back and you've, you've gained weight. So they can't really blame the walking. And there's something to it, right? There's something more to what's in the food, maybe, or how we process it. Well, I th I, you're right. There, there is something, and it's it's so difficult to say what it is. But the most interesting thing to me is that the Italian philosophy towards food is different. They don't live in fear of it. Um, they don't regard eating as as kind of bad for their health. They venerate and celebrate the products of the land and the sea. They have rules. You know, if you want to call this a San Marzano tomato, it's got to be this variety of tomato grown in this specific place. Um, we think of food as th that we need to fix food. You know, we, we add vitamins to food. We think we can outsmart our brain with artificial sweeteners and with fat replacers, and we pop all sorts of pills. We think we're on a lifelong sort of mission to, to fight it out and beat food, whereas they, they live in thrall to the wonders of eating. And, you know, their way sounds like, how could that possibly work? But it does work. 
Right. Interesting. I know a lot of people, I hear it all the time, they blame genetics on their weight problem. If their parents or grandparents were obese, then it's their destiny. What's your take? Should people be blaming their genes on why they can't fit into their genes? Well, it could be. You know, if you come from a lifelong, you know, lineage of people struggling with weight, then yes, the, the odds are stacked against you. But this is not a genetic thing that we're seeing because, you know, we see weight gain happening since the late 70s. Well, our genes haven't changed. There hasn't been some event that made all the people prone to carrying extra weight survive and everyone else died. Um, there hasn't been what they call genetic drift. We know it's something changed in the environment. Um, we also know with the case of Italians that they don't possess some skinny gene because Italians move to other countries and they put on weight. So this is an environmental thing. There's something in the world, something changed that has changed our relationship with food. Yeah. I agree, and I, like I said, I think a lot of it's the, the you know the hormones, the chemicals, the, the even the stuff in our containers. It's it's different than just living old school, natural. You know, get food from the bare essence of what it was, and now it's mixed and matched and bleached and salted. And so I think I think that's a, a big issue as well. Tell us what neuroscience says about obesity. You've done a little research on that as well. Well, it it it, uh, it contradicts one of the most widespread myths about obesity, which is that it is an overindulgence in the pleasures of eating. Most people think that people with obesity, they just like food too much and they lose themselves in the pleasures of eating. And that's not what the brain scans tell us. The brain scans tell us that obesity is really a problem of desire. So I'll just set it up. If, if you imagine two brains, one an obese brain, one a thin brain, and, and they get to have a milkshake. Most people think, well, oh, you know, the, the trim person takes a sip of the milkshake and, and they think that's okay, but they, they have control. But the obese person, well, they take the sip of the milkshake and they just lose themselves. That is not what happens. What we see actually is that the trim person seems to enjoy the milkshake more. Where we see the difference is when they see the milkshake, when they get that first glimpse of it, the trim person brain goes, that looks pretty good. I like milkshakes. The person with obesity goes, I've got to have that milkshake. That milkshake looks like the best thing ever. So what we find, they're in this, this vicious cycle of cravings that are never actually satisfied by this little dribble of pleasure that food gives them. It's, it's an absolutely miserable state, and it is really nothing like what most people think. Yeah, good point. I know when it comes to cravings, uh, people are susceptible, a lot of them, to advertisements. They'll see a Snickers candy bar commercial, and they get hypnotized. They can't stop thinking about, about it until they go and buy one. How can people break this seemingly hypnotic craving cycle? Well, I think one of the important things to do is to understand that. I think our, our language around food is really kind of blunt. We word, use the word delicious in many different ways. There's some foods, uh, like a lot of junk food, I don't actually think it tastes that great. It, what it does is you have a bite, and then you want to have another bite. And then that bite makes you want to have another bite. And we say things like, you know, bet you can't eat just one. These foods aren't truly pleasurable. Nobody talks about this great bag of chips they had on their honeymoon in 1987 or 1995. I had this, you know, incredible bag of hickory sticks or something. That's not how it works. Then there are other foods that that are absolutely sublime. They can they transport us. They they put us in touch with the the pleasures of the earth and of the sea. And we don't really have a good vocabulary. We call them both delicious. They're both very different experiences and they come down to different parts of your brain. But the most, the most promising uh, research I saw when researching this book, I visited a, a clinic in Germany, a scientist named Anya Hilbert, who treats some of Germany's most disordered cases of eating. And she uses what I'll call liking or deliciousness to treat disordered eating. So um, she actually brought me, she, she made me experience this. She gave me a, a bag of potato chips 
And she said, you can't eat these. You can open the bag. I sniffed them. She told me to rub the chips together, which I thought was so odd, but I was absolutely seized by craving. There was nothing I wanted more. And I suddenly realized the power that these foods have over us. They, even someone like me is, I weigh 172 pounds. I'm six feet tall. I'm, I'm quite trim. And yet I absolutely had to have these chips. Well, then she gave me a little dark chocolate surrounding a biscuit center. And she said, just let this melt in your mouth. And that just took me on a journey. I, every, suddenly the world slowed down. Instead of being hopped up and anxious, I was, I was its passenger. And this tiny chocolate gave me so much pleasure. And what is so fascinating about this woman is, is she's got patients with binge eating disorder. And she tells them when you are on that you know, cusp of binging and you want to just stuff your face, instead have a wonderful chocolate. And what she's found is that the pleasure that one of these really fine little chocolates can give can actually put out this fire of desire. So I think this is very promising because it tells us that there, that there may be a solution to this that isn't just dismal dieting and, and restraint and, and denying yourselves the pleasures of eating, that, that we can in fact restore a relationship with food where, where it gives us pleasure, it nourishes us, and, and we can love it and, and live happily with it. Yeah, and you said just a piece, not a whole giant bar, and you did mention dark chocolate, right? Isn't that the way to go? I think dark chocolate, especially for people who struggle, you know, as I spoke to one of her patients, her name was Mary, and she said the thing about dark chocolate is you can't eat it quickly. It, it, it kind of, it's like it's got a governor on it. You know, you, you can't stuff your face with dark chocolate. It really forces you to slow down. And she said at first she couldn't stand it. And then over time she got used to it and then she really started to like it. And then one day she put some milk chocolate in her mouth and she thought, oh my God, this is way too sweet. So her palate changed. The way she enjoyed food changes. And I think that's that's something, you know, that's a, that's a door that many of us can open. Yeah, true. I, in chapter seven of your book, you share the similarities of gambling and overeating. Share with us, what does one have to do with the other? Well, this is, this is what's interesting because a lot of people talk about food being addictive. And I think if that's the case, it's more like gambling than it is something like heroin or cocaine. Um, and what I talk about there is something called nutritive mismatch, but, and it, it gets quite technical, but I'll simplify it a little bit. And, and let's just reflect on the fact that we have so many food technologies that imitate food. We have artificial and natural flavoring. So you can make something taste like orange or grape or anything you want even though it doesn't taste that way. You use flavor chemicals. We have artificial sweeteners that make food taste sweet with fewer calories. We have fat replacers that let you have things like a light salad dressing or a, you know, a diet yogurt. It creates this illusion of fatty calories in the mouth. Well, if it turns out your brain is really stupid and it's kind of this ogre from the Stone Age that just wants to shove its you know, calories in its face, these are good ideas. But what if, as we said, the brain is actually really smart and it measures calories and it, it has this idea of a set point and how much it wants to weigh? Well, all of a sudden, maybe fooling it isn't such a good idea. So there is a, a psychology, a branch of psychology that looks at this. And, and what we've created there is called uncertainty. The technical word is reward prediction error. So your brain is, you know, the, the reason you taste food is so your brain can predict what's coming in the body. It needs to know if I'm getting carbs, if I'm getting fat, I gotta metabolize it this way. When you start to fool the brain, the brain reacts in a very predictable way. It gets more excited. It wants the thing that it was denied. Why is that? Well, let's just think back in evolution when, when, when we were you know, uh, living in the jungle, if something we needed became uncertain, you might not get it. Well, that meant you might, you might not get it, which means that's a loss. If that keeps happening, you're going to die. So when things that are important become uncertain, our brain is programmed to ramp up desire and say, I really need to get that. 
And that is what we see in the brains of obesity. Like I said, we see people want food. So what is making us want to eat more food than we need? The fact that we have changed the fundamental way food interacts with the brain, which is how it tastes, flavors, artificial sweeteners, fat replacers. Um, this is very important information that helps the brain metabolize food. And we've essentially engineered food that lies to our brain. And this is the consequence. It's fundamentally disrupting the relationship our brain has with food. Yeah, I love that food that lies, lies, because, uh, you know, the, the same thing I hear about salt. You know, many experts claim processed salt makes us crave sweets and carbs, but unprocessed salt from nature, like Himalayan or black lava salt, actually can decrease hunger. Share your views on salt. Is that true? Well, it, you know, I think it's it's interesting with salt because that's another thing we've been taught to fear. So I think where a lot of people get into trouble, I've seen, is people won't cook with salt. So they end up cooking incredibly bland food at home, and then they go out to eat. And of course, they go out go to a lot of these restaurants that are essentially serving processed food. A lot of people don't know this, but a lot of restaurants don't actually have kitchens. They just have reheating facilities. So you're essentially eating processed food. The waiter pretends it came from a kitchen, but it didn't come from a kitchen. And like you said, they're, they're, you know, the ingredients they use are not the same ingredients you'll use in your own home. Yeah, that makes sense. Every health expert that I've had on the show list public enemy number one is sugar. That's the inflammatory, the disease-causing entity. But in your book, you discuss how artificial sweeteners may, may even be worse. Share what, what, why is that worse for the brain than the actual real sugar? Well, because sweetness means something. The reason sugar tastes sweet, we tend to think of it as sort of like this sort of frivolous thing from the Stone Age, but but it's actually information to your brain. I talked about an experiment um, a professor at Yale did, her name is Dana Small, and she created these drinks where the sweetness was constant. So they all tasted equally sweet, but the actual payload of calories, one had no calories and, and it sort of went all the way up to 150 calories. And what she found is that if you mismatch calories to sweetness, which is to say you create a drink that's sort of this sweet, but there's actually too many calories or not enough calories to match that sweetness, brain doesn't know what to do with that. It doesn't metabolize it properly. You don't really get a brain response. It really messes things up. So this tells us that sweetness is information and that the quality of that information is important. So the fact that we go mucking around with food, you know, dumping in all this stuff, uh, it, it makes a difference. This is interfering with how the brain processes food, how it understands what it's getting. It's, re it's really important to understand, you know, the, the appetite part of your brain, the part of your brain that eats, it doesn't read nutritional labels. It doesn't read diet books. The only relationship it has with food is what it can sense. And when we sense food with smell, with taste, and we've just been on this unending campaign to muck around with, with the way, literally, food tastes. Yeah, and basically, like you mentioned, it's it's not what our brain was designed for. Chemistry, right? Created well, in a lab. Like think about <laughs> think about sweetness. You know, for for our ancestors living in you know in, in the jungle, they're eating fruit. Might have been hard to get that fruit, but the sweetness was always constant. It, it didn't lie. The sweeter the fruit, the more calories it had. So this is very new. You know, and and obesity is very new. It's only been happening since the late nineteen seventies. So we, we, didn't, we didn't evolve to deal with that. So, you know, there's no question that a lot of people consume too much sugar. But once again, let's think about, um, I talk about soft drinks. We say, oh, there's too much sugar in soft drinks. Well, that's true. But let's talk about the flavorings. Soft drinks, by and large, are imitating the jungle. You know, the flavorings in cola are vanilla, cinnamon. Uh, there's orange-flavored soft drinks, grape-flavored. They taste like fruit. If there was no flavorings in these soft drinks, it was just sugary soda water, would people drink them? 
I don't think so. They drink a little bit, but who wants to drink a, a glass of soda water with sugar in it? It's the flavorings. It's this. It's this fakeness that that turns on the brain and and causes this consumption to happen. That's so true. And you know, I've done some research on this topic, and back in the 1920s, 1930s, that's the height of candy bars. That's when Hershey's came out, Snickers, and and Go Henry, and a bunch, and and people loved and ate sugar, but they weren't obese. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> right. There's sweets obese. in Italy. I mean, that you know, the desserts I ate in northern Italy. I mean. The, make you swoon they're incredible but so so you can enjoy these things without getting literally out of control yeah so true let me get your take on gluten why did our parents and grandparents seem to have no issues digesting gluten containing grains but today gluten intolerance become this big health concern i would say that's an area that i'm less familiar with i'm one of those people who's pretty lucky in so far as uh, i don't have an issue with it that said i don't eat a lot of processed food so that that may be a result of my diet um, but there's no question that a lot, of pe- a lot of people struggle with it. And and there's, you know, celiac disease, but there's also a lot of people that don't have celiac, but they they seem to still have an issue with it. Yeah, I've, I've found that it's it's basically our gut is being destroyed by these chemicals we talked about earlier. And then gluten now is uh, very difficult to digest. But if we're healthy, we digest it. We just don't have a healthy gut. And that, that's my view on that. I think that's why it's different today than it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. The wheat didn't change. Our ability to digest it did as well. Let me ask you, so with all the diets, I'm curious, there's vegan, paleo, keto, intermittent fasting. Which one do you believe is the healthiest to follow? Well, I would say if you can find one that works for you, um, follow that. My own approach to food is to eat like an Italian, which is to say eat real food, Um, not food that came out of a factory, but food that came from the earth or from the sea. It's a plant or it was an animal that ate a plant. Um, And but here's the important part. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. Every meal should be an opportunity to indulge in the joys of eating. Uh, Food isn't um, medicine. Food isn't something that should um, should be like, um, you know, going to grammar school. Food is is a passion. We should love it and enjoy it and revel in it and and eat together. Uh, Eating is it's an act of love of the earth and also with your loved ones. Don't eat alone in front of the TV or in the car. Eat at the table with uh, with your family and your friends. And that's a big part of uh, Italy. That's what they, they eat. It's, it's, a, it's a bonding. It's not just a, that's, it's family sharing and friends. It's, it's not scarf it down so you can go back to play, playing video games like it is in America. Exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, you know what's so interesting? They eat fewer calories than we do, and it takes them twice as long. So that tells us their, their meals are very different than ours. Yeah, very good. With so many herbal and nutritional products on the market, they claim to curtail cravings, and some say they burn fat and speed our metabolism up. From your research, have you found anything that gets your seal of approval? No, I haven't. Um, I haven't seen anything that I think works, and I I still think you know we were designed to eat real food, so I think that's that's the ticket. Now, if your doctor has told you you should take this vitamin or that, that that's different. But I think if you're looking to the solution to you know to to, to heal the relationship with food, I, I think the key is eating is eating food as we were designed to eat it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the minute we have left, is there anything else you'd like to share that we didn't cover today? You certainly mentioned lots of lots of great questions. Um, I, I think, you know, like I said, it's just, um, it, it's so important just to try and th- think differently about this. We have been so cultured to think that we need to intervene and change food. That every time somebody invents something new, like this, you know, magical drink which has got nutrients in it, or some kind of a fake meat, that we give it a standing ovation and think we've done it. I think it's going to be an awfully long time before we can do a better job at nature does in terms of making food. 
Yeah, fantastic info. Thanks so much. Time flew by, but you, you, you shared some really insightful information in a short amount of time, so I'm sure our listeners took some good notes. I know I did. The book is called The End of Craving. Uh, Cravings Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. Great book. You can get your copy at markshatzker.com. His last name is spelled S-C-H-A-T-Z-K-E-R. And you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Mark Chatsker. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Dr. David Friedman. On Instagram, I'm at Dr. D. Friedman. If you heard something today that would benefit somebody you know, which I'm sure you did, a lot of people craving things out there, send them a link to this podcast. It's available to yourgoodhealthradio.com and radiomd.com. And check out our podcast library. Share these segments with friends family, co-workers, and on social media. As I always say, sharing is caring. Don't keep this information to yourself. You can also subscribe to future podcasts at iHeartRadio and iTunes. More to come. Stay tuned and stay well.